Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. If you haven't already, um, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Philippians chapter 1. And while we do that, let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Doing well. <clears throat> Reasonably decent. Okay. Good. Um, Jim Elliott uh, famous, famously says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, the fool is somebody who tries to grasp at what they're going to lose. Grasp at things that are not eternal. The fool is somebody who tries to uh, hold on to and attain stuff, possessions, perceived security. The fool is someone who, in the illustration of of C.S. Lewis, is in the slums making mud pies because they don't realize the promise and the joy that is at the infinite sea. And we know that Jim Elliot believed this because he lived it, right? Uh, if, you, if you know his story, he gained what he couldn't lose. He gained Christ. He was a Christian. He was a missionary. He gained the hope of glory, and eventually he will gain the, the resurrection from the dead. And he also gave up what he couldn't keep. Jim Elliot was from America, and um, he had the opportunity to, uh, his parents wanted him to stay at um, his home church that he grew up at and be the youth director there, but he decided to give that up and instead go to the mission field. And him and his wife and a group of uh, five other couples, four other couples went down to Ecuador. So he didn't consider his life in America or his job that he could have gotten or his security. He didn't consider that something to be taken advantage of. But rather, he, he gave that up. He gave up that sense of security, that comfort. And he gave up those things, and ultimately, he gave up his life. He moved to Ecuador um, to, to um, uh, reach the Harani people. And as he was trying to make contact with them, they had never seen a white person before. They had never heard the name of Jesus before. And after a few touch points of communication with them, he and um, four of his other friends, they went to bring the gospel to them, and they were murdered. And uh, uh, that story, you know, at least to me, is very inspiring. And Jim Elliott is just one of many who have given their lives, and not just, not just given their, their, their literal lives, but given up what they thought they could have attained. They, give up, they gave up their possessions, and they're just, he's just one among many who have followed the call of Christ to live an upside-down life, right? We've been talking about Philippians and this theme of the way up is down. They are following, Jim Elliott and others like them are following this pattern and this promise to live a cruciform, a cross-shaped, downwardly mobile life. And that's inspiring. That's inspiring for those of us who are in Christ. That, all, that kind of life is also really confusing if you don't have the same, you know, um, reality. Like you don't see, the same, see things the same way. As we talk about, you know, the kingdom of heaven the way up is down, this idea of, of the kingdom of God being an upside-down kingdom, right? We know that the scriptures say that the, in the kingdom of heaven, the one who is first will be last, the one who is last will be first, the one who is least will be the greatest. And that's really confusing if you don't, if we live in that kingdom, but if you can't see that kingdom. 
It's really confusing to live that way for somebody whose eyes aren't open to that reality. It's really confusing for the person who hasn't heard the gospel and understood that actually by, by giving up your life, you actually gain life. It's really confusing for the person that cares about their reputation. Why would I give up something? It's really confusing for the person who cares about their comfort or their perceived security with their bank account or their job or their retirement plan. In other words, it's really confusing for a non-believer, somebody who is not in Christ, and a cultural Christian. Which, by the way, the phrase cultural Christian is a, is a, a misnomer. There's no such thing as a cultural Christian. You are either in Christ or you are not. But it's, it's confusing to think of this idea, this pattern of living as the way up is, da- is down. If you do not have eyes to see and you have not been found in Christ and realized that you actually gain life by losing it. Dallas Willard, of course, says it perfectly in this quote. If I am not immersed in the reality of this kingdom of love, i.e. the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, then it will not seem good or right to me to forego reputation, pride, vanity, and wealth, and I will inescapably be driven to pursue them. Why? Because we live in a world that says what? More, 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 more. We live in a world that is actually intentionally discipling us to love ourselves and the things of this world. The world is actively, explicitly, and intentionally trying to form our minds, our emotions, our bodies, our desires to gain what we will lose, to love mud pies instead of realizing that there's infinite joy at the sea. Our world says, get it all. Our world says, up and to the right. And yet, what does the king say? The king had it all, right? And he said, I'm, it, it's not this upward mobility. It's actually a downward mobility. And in Philippians 2, it says that the king, Jesus, he had it all, and he didn't use it as something to be exploited, to be taken advantage of, but rather, he what? He emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he became obedient. Obedient to what? To the point of death, but not just any death, the most um, excruciating, awful form of execution human history has ever known, death on a cross. And yet, God did not leave him in the grave. Because of Jesus' obedience and because of Jesus' faith, God raised him from the dead, exalted him, and gave him the new personal name of God himself, Yahweh. And it's at that name that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is that Lord, is Yahweh, so that God receives the glory. And that Yahweh, Jesus, the king, has actually given us right here, right now, that life. To f- so, so that we can follow in his footsteps, so that we can sit at his feet, so that we can lift our eyes up to him, so that we can receive the love of the Father and actually give the love of the Father to others, so that we can participate in his life. We now have Jesus' life. So that we can participate in his sufferings. We now carry Jesus' sufferings. So that we can participate in his death. And ultimately, so that we can participate in his resurrection from the dead. Because death does not have the final say when you are in Christ. Paul understood that gospel. Paul understood that good news. And he writes about it in his letter to the Philippians. Now, as Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians, if you remember, he's in prison at this time. But Paul was in prison a lot uh, in his life. So what time of life was Paul in prison. This is near the end, this is closer to the end of Paul's ministry, the end of Paul's life. So Paul's been walking with the Lord now for some time. 
He's experienced uh, a lot of persecution, and he's in prison in Rome. Uh, what happened was, basically, um, the last two years of Paul's ministry, he's in house arrest in Rome, and he got to Rome because he was thrown in prison at a different time in a different place, like years earlier than that, and they brought him to trial to try to like execute him, but they couldn't, they didn't have anything against him. Basically, some people were mad because he started a ruckus in the city and Jews didn't like him, Gentiles didn't like him, Romans didn't like him. But when it actually got to trial, he's like, hey, I'm a Roman citizen and this is an unlawful trial. And uh, so he, he was at a trial with a guy named Herod Agrippa and Paul was like, there's no evidence against me, so I want to appeal to Caesar. So Agrippa says, you wanna appeal to Caesar? To Caesar, you shall go. So then he travels all the way to Rome, and that's when he had that like shipwreck happen, and he was on the island for a while, and then he eventually gets to Rome to basically it'd be like the equivalent of a case getting up to the Supreme Court. Like Paul is arguing, and he's like, nobody can prove me guilty, so I'm just going to go to the to the top. And so he's just waiting in Rome for multiple years in house arrest, chained to a uh, imperial guard, sharing the gospel with everybody. During that time, he writes this letter to the Philippians. I say all that because in a second here, we're going to get into Paul. Paul's like debating. Like, or he's talking about maybe being released from prison or he's talking about dying because there's only two outcomes to his trial with Caesar. He will either be free and go or he will die. So um, that being said, let's look at uh, Philippians 1, verse 18b, and we'll just kind of walk through the text and then we'll, we'll um, land uh, in a few places and then go on from there. So Paul says in 18b, he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. We know from Tom's sermon last week that people were preaching Christ out of envy, out of rivalry, out of selfish ambition, yet Paul didn't care because the gospel was going forth, right? He says, whatever, what, it doesn't matter, only that in every way, false motives, good motives, good or bad, Christ is proclaimed in this, I rejoice. And then he continues on. He's saying, I'm not only going to rejoice in that present moment, I'm actually going to continue rejoice in the future, even though he doesn't know his, his uh, impending um, uh, outcome. So why does he rejoice? Verse 19, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul says he, he knows this will lead to my salvation. Um, when I hear the word salvation, I, I kind of think of, like when I hear the word salvation in church or in the Bible, I kind of think of like what's gonna happen to me after I die, right? Like oftentimes you grow up in it, and this is true, it's not fully true, but it's not not true, if that makes sense. Like you pray a prayer and you get Jesus in your heart and now I'm saved. We use this language, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? Well, that we typically mean, has Jesus entered your heart and are you going to the good place when you die? But that's not what Paul means when he uses the word salvation here. Because at this point, Paul is already saved right? He already had the road to Damascus experience. He has already been brought from death to life. He is already Christ-centered, cruciform in his life, like all these things. So how can something lead to his salvation? There's one of two options. Either our definition of the word salvation isn't full enough and needs tweaked and adjusted, or Paul's definition of salvation needs tweaked and adjusted. And it's probably just a good rule of thumb whenever you're reading the Bible to assume that, you know, we are the ones that need to correct our definitions of things and the biblical authors don't need to correct their definitions of things. So that being said, what does Paul mean when he said this will lead to my salvation? That phrase right there, I know this will lead to my salvation, this is super cool, is exactly verbatim, word for word, a quote used in the book of Job. Job 13, verse 16, 
Job says this phrase, yes, I know this will lead to my salvation. Now, it might be a little different in your English versions, but the Greek is word for word, verbatim, the exact same. So Paul's alluding to this, all, everybody, all scholars agree that Paul's alluding to this verse in the book of Job. So the question then is, well, what, is, what does Paul mean when he says that, right? Whenever a New Testament author uses or quotes to or alludes to the Old Testament, it's a good habit to go there, read it in context, figure out what's going on, and then import that and bring that uh, into this text. So in this section, you don't have to turn there, but in this section of Job, Job, if you remember, he was a righteous man, blameless, and God took everything from him. So his situation, his circumstances are absolutely awful. His friends come, his friends come, and uh, they come from all corners of the earth, and they sit there, and at first they do a really good thing, and they sit with him in silence for a very long time, and they're mourning with him, and they're grieving with him, but then they start opening their mouths, and they start talking, and they start actually accusing Job, saying, Job, what did you do to deserve this? Because clearly you did something. This just doesn't happen to people. You have hidden sin. You have something going on in your life that you haven't confessed. You, like, and they just start hurling all these accusations at Job. And Job stands his ground. So Job's in a, in a, in a circ, his circumstances are very dim. And his friends that are supposed to be there supporting him and helping him have actually turned and started hurling insults at him. And in this passage, Job 12, 13, and 14, Job responds and he says, no, I'm, I am blameless. I have not done anything wrong. I know that all of this, no matter what's happening, all of these circumstances, all of these situations, all of these everything, I know that God will vindicate me and this will lead to my salvation. Now, does he mean a literal physical salvation as if he's gonna get all his stuff restored? Maybe, maybe not. Does he mean more like a, a future vindication and salvation that when he passes, he knows that he will be raised from the dead and he will live in eternity with his savior? Maybe, M maybe not. Both of those situations are present in this uh, word, in this salvation. So for Job to say, even amidst my circumstances, I know that God will deliver me. Job is what? He's in this kind of like the, the rock bottom of his life right now. And he's like, I know God will deliver me. Import that into what Paul is saying. What situation is Paul in? Paul's in prison. These, these people who are preaching Christ are preaching it out of rivalry. Rivalry against whom? Against Paul. And yet Paul says, no matter what happens, I know that this is going to lead to my salvation. I, whether that's a literal physical salvation and he'll, he'll remain alive and he won't die, or whether that's when Jesus returns and raises him from the dead, he knows that God is going to vindicate him because of his faith and his obedience and his downwardly mobile Christ-centered life. Who else did that happen to, right? What's Jesus' pattern? The way up is down. He starts, he empties himself, he humbles himself, he gets to rock bottom. His people are hurling insults at him. His disciples flee from him. And yet he knows that no matter what, he will be vindicated. This will lead to his salvation, this resurrection from the dead, and this ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father. All of that is happening in this verse right here. Now, how does it happen? Look at what Paul says. This will lead to my salvation. How? Through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. Well, which is it? Is it the prayers of the people? or the spirit of Jesus Christ? Well, yes. So what does that mean for us? Do we believe that our prayers, along with the spirit of Jesus Christ, can actually change circumstances? Can actually change life situations? 
can actually lead people to follow Christ well? He goes on, verse 20. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Two words here to note. At the first part of the sentence, he says, I will not be ashamed about anything. The word is ashamed from the root shame. And the Greek means ashamed, right? And there's another word too later, and it's highly honored in my body. So in this verse, we have the word shame and we have the word honor. We have the word shame, we have the word honor. Now, in this century, um, they lived in an honor-shame culture, which is uh, much different than our culture that we live in today. Um, Honor and shame in this culture was very public. Like if you were shamed in your culture then, it was like your family would disassociate with you. Uh, If you were honored then, you, everybody wanted to be uh, on your side. And what's interesting is that the people who were probably shamed the most besides slaves were prisoners. In this culture, if you were a prisoner, you were the most to be pitied almost. People would actually disassociate with their family members and their friends if they were put in prison. And yet, Paul is sitting where? In prison, and he's saying, I am not going to be ashamed about anything. What I would expect Paul to say after that is, I'm not going to be ashamed, but I'm actually going to be honored. What does he say? He says, I'm not going to be ashamed, but who's going to be honored? Christ. You see Paul's selflessness here? If he gives up and he becomes ashamed, it's on him. But if he, if he remains true and if he uh, uh, holds fast, then who gets honored? Not Paul, but Christ. He gets honored how? Whether by life or by death. And then we have verse 21. For me, this is Paul speaking, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is life. Paul is saying that his life is Christ. His life is about Christ. His life is not his own, but it is actually Christ's life. His life means to be about, in, through, because all of the things Christ Christ fills out his entire life. Now, what does that mean? Karl Barth says this. uh, When Paul speaks, uh, for me to live is Christ, he is saying that I live, but my life has been arrested and confiscated by Christ, and thus he lives for me in my place, which is now my proper life. Other passages where Paul says something similar. I'm just gonna read these really quick. Other passages where he says something similar about me living is Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.10. We always carry the death of Jesus in our bodies. We carry the death of Jesus in our bodies so that the life of Jesus might also be displayed in our body. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died, Christ died for all, So that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. A couple verses later, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Colossians 3, 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then famously Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life I do now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that how we live? Is that how you live? Or does it feel harder than that? Does that feel like an ideal sometimes? I mean, that, must, that must be nice to be able to say that. Because sometimes we, our life looks like we wake up, we're rushed, we're trying to get to work on time, we're trying to get the kids where they need to go, and then we have all these complications and, and relational dysfunctions at work or at home or whatever, and then you might get a, a break at lunch to kind of eat and breathe a little bit. And then you get back into the grind for the afternoon, and then if you're working at five, you feel like you have to start another job, and if the kids come home at three or four, you have to take them where they need to go, and then you might be able to sit down and have a meal together, but probably not, and might be able to go out with your friends one night, and then you get to bed, and you're exhausted, but you can't fall asleep, and so you scroll through your phone, and then you fall asleep, and then that's it, and you wake up the next day just to do that same exact thing over and over again. Is that the life that Paul is describing? Is that life in Christ? Is that life to the fullest? Because it, it sure doesn't sound like it, and I guarantee it doesn't feel like it. He says, for me to live is Christ, and then he says, to die is gain. This is the epitome of the way up is down. We live in a world where we have so many death-denying and death-delaying things that we surround ourselves with because we believe functionally that death is absolutely the worst thing that can happen to us. It, Paul says elsewhere, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then we are the most to be pitied. In other words, if death is final, then we should be pitied because we believe that death is not final. If that's true, let's think about this for a second. If that's true, that death was final, would you be, would you be pitied? If, if death had the final say and there was no resurrection from the dead and Christ was not raised from the dead, would people feel bad for you because they know that you were really sold out for this thing? If, if we found out this whole Christianity thing was a hoax, would your life look different? Would people who don't know the Lord, would they come up to you and be like, man, I'm really sorry. I know you were really sold out for that stuff. Because if not, then we cannot say to die is gain. And we can only say to die is loss. Paul expounds on this more. What does it mean that death is gain? He keeps going. Verse 22, now if I live on in the flesh... This means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. In other words, remember Paul is in trial, and he's about to go to trial. And if he lives, if he survives, then he'll have more work to do with churches, and he'll go visit the Philippians again and encourage them. But if he dies, uh, he says um, that it's far better. Look at verse 23. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far, far better. But... To remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Paul is committed to magnifying Christ in his body and doing what's best for the Philippians. Paul's preference here is to die. You notice that? My preference is to, to depart and be with Christ. And he says, I don't know which one I should choose there's a lot of confusion over this. Is Paul contemplating suicide? A lot of people think that Paul is contemplating like this choice between like, I'm either going to 
commit suicide or I'm going to lie. But that's not the, that's not the case. What Paul does not, Paul does not mean that he's thinking about taking his own life. He does not mean that. What Paul means is that he's thinking about remaining silent in trial, quiet in trial. If he were to go to trial and he were to remain silent and he would not defend himself, he would be um, condemned to death, right? But if he, uh, if, he, if he defended himself and he wasn't silent in trial, then he would probably live because, actually he would live because he would have a Roman citizenship card and he'd be like, I was unlawfully tried and I'm here now and all that stuff. Um, so, so it's not suicide as we think about it today. Paul isn't d- contemplating like, am I going to commit suicide or am I not? Because uh, he just decided whether or not to stay silent at the trial. And who else stayed silent at their trial? Jesus, right? He was, he was brought to trial and he stayed silent. And Jesus did not, did not commit suicide as we think of it, as we think of it today. He was pursuing, Jesus was pursuing a path of downward mobility out of love for his people to save people from their sins, and he was obedient to death on a cross. So for Jesus, putting the needs of others above the needs of himself was remaining silent in trial, but notice what's happening for Paul here. For him, for Paul, putting the needs of others above the needs of himself is actually defending himself. In other words, his preference is to, he's tired, he's exhausted, he wants to be with Christ, that's his preference, but he knows that it's actually better for the Philippians that he remains alive. So he says, what, I'm going to put the needs of others above the needs of myself, and I'm going to remain, and I'm going to defend myself, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to see you. There's a quote from Michael Gorman that says this, for Paul, to desire and choose life rather than death is to act in Christ-like love, emptying himself of selfish interest and acting for the welfare of others. Ironically, he embraces the death of Christ most faithfully in his circumstances by choosing not to die. His perspective is both cruciform, cross-shaped, selfless, and missional for the sake of carrying the gospel to others. In what ways can we say this is true of our life? For us, we're not in this, we're not in this situation, right? We're not in Jesus' shoes, we're not in Paul's shoes, but we are each in our own, there are, as many people are here, we are each in our own situation where we have an opportunity to, put, to, to have a cruciform, cross-shaped, and missional life, where we might have our preferences, we might have our desires, but because of Christ, we are able to say, I'm gonna put the needs of others above the needs of myself. I'm gonna follow this path of downward mobility. Is that our perspective? Later, Paul's gonna call us to imitate him. He's saying, he'll say, imitate me, what you've seen me do, what you've heard about me, do all these things. And who is Paul imitating? Christ. The pattern of Christ done out of love brings us life. In other words, death brings us life. And as we conclude, um, there's just one challenge and one thought I wanna present to us today. And before I do that, application and and conviction is, I think, I personally think is the hardest part of a sermon because you can't manufacture it because that's the spirit's job. But at the same time, you wanna prompt it and you wanna poke and prod but at the same time, when you second you start messing with idols in your own heart or idols in other people's hearts, defense mechanisms come up. And there's an illustration, you know, you're supposed to look at, take a good look at, in the mirror and evaluate yourself and ask the Lord to open your eyes to see 
where you can grow and how he can work in you. But a lot of times what we do is we take that mirror and we turn it around and we start deflecting to other people. The conviction comes in and we, we, we deflect. So I have been convicted of this. Um, it's easy to deflect conviction. It's easy to think, well, man, this person really needs to hear this or they really need to, to read the sermon. I'm just gonna ask for all of us, myself included, if we could just put the mirror back down and allow the spirit to do his work. Um, the question is, it's a, more of a fill in the blank and exercise, and, and I would like encourage you to write this down, take a picture of it, take it with you this week. The question is, to live is fill in the blank. To live is what? To me, my life is this. My life is characterized by, my life is fueled by. For some of you, maybe it's comfort. To me, to live is comfort. The comfort of overindulgence, of food, of clothes, of resources, of stuff, of hobbies. The comfort that comes from having all that money in the bank account, having that job that allows you to live well beyond what you actually need, the comfort that comes from this perceived security. For some of you, maybe uh, for you to live is prestige and status, status of being successful in work, the promotion or job that makes you feel really good, the status of even your relational status, married, single, kids, no kids. For some of you, maybe uh, to live is to constantly be in a state of discontentment. discontentment in your job, in your family situation, always wanting what's next. The way that you can tell that those things are true in your life is what happens and how you respond when they're taken away, when that comfort is taken away, when that security is taken away, when that status is taken away when that person is taken away. Whatever it is, take this with you this week. Sit down, pray, ask the spirit to reveal what, it, what is true and what you fill in the blank here. Because, and here's the good news, it is possible to say, for me to live is Christ. It is possible. It's not just this condemnation message of like, well, I'm not, I, I can't put Christ in there, and so I guess I, I, I should, you know, try to be better. No, 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 no. It is absolutely possible for you to say to live is Christ. It is possible for us to give up playing with mud pies, mud pies because we know that the joy of the sea is promised to us. It is possible to join Jim Elliot in saying that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's possible to join him and sell everything you have and join the cause of global missions. It's possible possible to join Paul in saying, for me, to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. It might not feel like it now, but there is no tiered Christianity. It's easy to think, well, that was Paul. He can say that. Well, that was Jim Elliot. He was really sold out for the gospel. No, 
The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, which means it's possible for us to get to that point. It might not take a day. It might take our entire life. In fact, it will take our entire lifetimes to get there. But imagine, imagine what a people could be fully transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine what we could be right here, right now. Seriously, right here, right now. Imagine what we could be if we adopted the same attitude of Christ Jesus and put the needs of others above the needs of ourselves. Imagine what we could be if we could honestly, truly fill that out and say, for me, to live is Christ. I'm gonna join in imitating Paul. I'm gonna join in imitating Christ. I'm going to give up what I think I deserve, what I think I need, and I'm actually gonna pursue a downward ability, not out of duty, but out of love. What led Jesus to the cross? Love. What led Paul to suffer for his friends? Love. The lo- the, the Christ is, what it says that they will know that we are Christians by the way we love each other. Imagine what a community that would be. Imagine if we all adopt a cruciform, cross-shaped life where we believe that the way up is down. Imagine if we've learned the secret to contentment. Paul says that later in Philippians, that no matter what happens, no matter what's taken away from us, no matter what situation we're in, we can honestly and confidently say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Father, I want that. I want that right now. I want to be able to say that to live is you and to die is gain. Lord, you know where all of our hearts are at. You know in this moment where we all sit. You know our, our fears. You know our sins. You know what our idols are what we use to cope. But also we know, Father, that you meet all of us where we are. And um, you accept us with with where we are, but you don't want us to stay there. So Lord, I I pray that wherever we are, whether, whether somebody has never committed their life to you, I pray that you would bring them to you. You would draw them to you. Father, for the person that's cup feels empty, feels like they're running on fumes, I pray that you would fill them up. You would overflow them with your love. You would comfort them. Father, for the person that's cup is maybe half full and it feels like they're coasting, I ask that you would inspire them. You would encourage them. You would give them a fresh fire. And Father, for the person here whose cup is overflowing, and they know your love, and they feel your love, and they receive your love, and they give your love, I pray that you would not stop, that you would continue to draw them towards yourself. Only you can convict. Only you know where our hearts are, Lord. And as we enter into a time of communion, I do pray that your spirit and your death on the cross would be forefront in our minds, because we know that when we participate in your sufferings and death, and we also participate in your resurrection. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Allow us to join with Paul in rejoicing. We pray all these things in your son's name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.